Hi, I'm Lisa Brenner, letting you know that my new film, Say My Name, will be available in selected theaters and on demand starting June 14th. It's a madcap British comedy about love, one night stands, and criminals who shoot themselves in the leg. To find out more, go to the Say My Name Movie Facebook page or simply search the hashtag Say My Name Movie on whatever social media you use, and you might just see me in a sex scene. That's all I'm saying. Hey, this is Mark A. Altman, and if you're a fan of the 430 movie, you'll love Best Movies Never Made, hosted by Jodorowsky's Dune producer Steve Scarlatta and Josh Miller, where they explore some of the greatest movies that were never made, from E.T. 2 to Tim Burton's Superman, Night Skies to Star Trek The Academy Years. New episodes available every other Monday, wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey, this is Mark A. Altman, and if you're a fan of Star Trek, check out my new sci-fi TV series, Pandora, debuting on The CW and around the world on July 9th, starring Priscilla Quintana and Oliver Dench, and you can find out more by downloading the Unboxing Pandora podcast, available weekly wherever you listen to podcasts. Get ready to join the Inglorious Trexperts live at San Diego Comic-Con as they boldly go to the greatest Comic-Con on Earth. We'll be there. Will you? Meet all your favorite and least favorite Inglorious Trexperts hosts as they talk Trek live and in person, only at San Diego Comic-Con. Hey, I'm Mark A. Altman. And I'm Darren Doctorman, and we are the Inglorious Trexperts. This is the story of the Wrath of Khan. You can read along with me in your book. You will know it is time to turn the page when you hear the communicator beep like this. Let's begin now. Space, the final frontier. These are the continuing voyages of the Starship Enterprise. A new crew was being trained on the Enterprise. The ship's new captain, Mr. Spock, asked Admiral James Kirk to observe the crew's first training flight. He greeted his old friend when he came aboard. How are you feeling, Admiral? Useless, Spock. I feel old and useless. I shouldn't be working behind a desk on Earth. I should be out here in space. And have we got a show for you today, <laughs> Con Do Attitude. Now, what does I that see mean? What you did there. It's a little that's, pun, that's extremely little. little. <laughs> so um, I want to introduce you uh, to um, some of our regular guests, and, and uh, I was going to say a first-time caller, but that's not quite right. Um, we have uh, from uh, Rob's Observations, the Burnett Network on YouTube, uh, the writer uh, and uh, director and editor of Free Enterprise, Mr. Robert Meyer Burnett. Welcome back. It's great to be here, and it's a great day to be here. Well, we'll get to that. we got to get to that. This is a big day in Star Trek history that we're re- we're recording. Obviously, uh, shocking. We're not out live, uh, you know, re- talking to you while you're in your car. We recorded this, and then it put out into the world shortly thereafter. But it is a very special day in Star Trek history, and, and for Rob and I, as well, in terms of a thing, little thing we did. Um, Ashley Miller, writer of Thor and X Men First Class, a, a producer writer on uh, shows like Lore, uh, Terminator, the Sarah Connor Chronicles, Terminator, the Sarah Connor Chronicles, uh, and of course um, Fringe and uh, Black Sail. So welcome back, Ashley. I have the greatest enthusiasm for this podcast, Mark. And I am, I'm really happy. I, I had the honor to interview him uh, for Star Trek's 50th anniversary at the uh, American Cinematheque, where we screened uh, uh, the film that, uh, one of the films that he produced. Um, he is one of the unsung heroes of uh, Star Trek. I'm so glad to have him here today to share his story and uh, incredible anecdotes uh, about the making of this beloved uh, classic. I want to say Star Trek classic. It's a beloved classic period. And that's uh, Mr. Robert Salen. Bob Salen, welcome to the show. Well, thank you very much, Mark. And thank you very much, fellas. And uh, I must say I'm pleasantly surprised because I didn't think anybody would care. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, that's where you're we wrong. Care, we care a We lot. are crazy about it. Well, let, let's let's just say today, the day we're recording the show. What makes today different than any other day, Mark? It, it, we recline. We eat unleavened bread. No. No, the reason we're here today is June 4th, 2019. This is the 35th 
Seventh. 37th. 37th anniversary of June 4th, 1982. Can anyone tell me what happened on June 4th, 1982 that did not involve Craig T. Nelson? Oh, <laughs> Star Trek to the Wrath of Khan Wrath opened of Khan. in theaters. That is correct. It, it, and forever changed Star Trek and, and, and movies. And uh, My life. Now, uh, before we move on to why that's so significant, tell me what happened many years later on June 4th, 1999. Darren Docterman made his screen debut <laughs> in the motion picture Free Enterprise starring opposite William Shatner. Right. In the yes. enterprise that I directed, Mark produced, and we both oh, wrote. Right. I have to say, I have to say, I'm doing nothing special for the 20th anniversary of our movie, Rob. However, being here with you and being here with Bob Sound, the producer of Star Trek II, I, what an exciting, I, what a great way to celebrate the 20th anniversary of thought? our movie. From those it's small beginnings. Amazing. And yeah. the fact that Darren's in it. Yeah, but, uh, you know. But to be I with, still haven't to been be paid, with one so of the producers okay. of, of, of <laughs> I think, which is generally recognized as the best Star Trek film, uh, it's amazing. It's amazing I, that we- I'm not going to argue with you. <laughs> <laughs> well, like, I mean, to be fans that have come this far and now to be doing this podcast with an esteemed producer of one of our favorite films, I would say, of all time. I had this little, I remember when I was, uh, was uh, I wasn't a kid, I was in high school, there was these little things that Eddie Egan, the publicist, the unit publicist for um, Star Trek, uh, gave out. It was, I said, the beginning of, uh, at the beginning of the universe lies the beginning of vengeance because, of course, the original title was The Vengeance of Khan. It would open up and there was this collage of images. And then on the back was the billing block. And I'd see Gene Roddenberry's name and Shatner and all. And then there was his name, Robert Salen, and, and, and uh, produced by producer. And I was like, I, I don't know who that is. I never heard of him. And, and, and you know, obviously, he, Star Trek II, and then they would make other movies, but Bob Salen's name was never there. I, I never could understand. I said, but he was involved with the, this great movie, and what happened? Who? I want to know his story. And, well, let's talk about your story. <laughs> so you're right here. So well, well, uh, <laughs> I, just I don't him. know where to begin. Um, do you want to know how I came to Star Trek? I, I Well, I understand you were very successful at making commercials and advertising. So Right. Um, Actually, I, in, in a way, I think I was preparing most of my life to do that job. Uh, I started as a, an actor when I was in about the fourth or fifth grade growing up in Pittsburgh, which for its, at its time, the educational system was very advanced and everybody had to take a dramatics class. I hit that and suddenly I was writing plays and starring in plays when I was a kid. And then eventually I became an actor and was a professional actor, the youngest member of American Federation of Radio Artists at the time. And I was working on radio. Remember radio, fellas? Remember radio? Yeah, <laughs> I do. Well, I Who knows what evil lurks? In the hearts of <laughs> I worked on the, the United States Steel Hour Theater Guild on the air with Basil Rathbone and Dorothy McGuire. Wow. And I did a lot of stuff. And I had my own shows. And by the time I was 15, I was actually producing and directing for NBC. And I used to have to get excused from my 10th grade class to go downtown, oh take two, take two streetcars in Pittsburgh and go downtown to do a, jo do a show and then go back to school. Wow. wow. And uh, it was great. I just took it all for granted. Anyway, long story came back, moved to California. And uh, um, anyway, so I got into the UCLA and uh, went into the film department before it was fashionable. Mm -hmm. right. And uh, spent, uh, we were only about 40 of us in the, in the, in the class at that time. Um, graduated, went into the service, was an officer in the Air Force and making films all over Europe, Africa, and the Middle East. And I did that for about four years and came back to high unemployment. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the world was not waiting for me. Yeah. So I was unemployed for about eight months, which was a pretty traumatic time, and eventually worked on the St Steve Canyon show and the second unit and then led to advertising. Anyway, I had a very successful time at, at both in the advertising industry. Uh, I was I worked for Footcone and Building, was a vice president in charge of production for the West Coast, mm -hmm. and um, decided I wanted to start my own company, which I did. It was called Kaleidoscope Productions. And over the 18 years when I was in business, uh, I directed, I guess, close to 2,000 commercials. Um, and it was good, and it was profitable, and I burned out. Mm. And during the time, uh, I was always being asked, uh, Harv, Bennett uh, would ask me periodically to uh, direct an episode of something, and sometimes we'd go to UCLA together. Is that we right? had gone to UCLA okay. together, and uh, sometimes I did it, and sometimes I couldn't do it. But when I did it, uh, as much fun as it might have been, uh, I had a thing called overhead. <laughs> and uh, I had all this staff in a building on Sunset Boulevard, and I, I made more money making commercials than I did directing episodic. Sure. So uh, one thing led to another, but I eventually burned out. And I was just doing freelance work around town when Harv called 
<clears throat> and said that he'd made a deal at Paramount. He had three projects. He had uh, Star Trek. He had a woman called Golda, and a, a, a series for NBC. I believe is called The Powers of David Star. Matthew, Matthew, Matthew Star. No, God I changed the first name. Oh. No, there was That's a conflict awesome. about using the name David Star, and uh-huh. he said we need something. So my son's name is Matthew. And that's how it came about. We think we're so smart. We're yeah, going to correct the guess. I love it's when not, that happens. It's not David Stern. I really love when I, that happens. I just want to really reiterate that Herman Zimmerman, who later went on to be a production designer on Star Trek uh, The Next Generation, worked on the powers of Matthew Starr when he was at Paramount. Really? But his yeah. name was Henry at the time. That's right. <laughs> I had to change it to. No. I love that show. <laughs> Anyway, it uh, uh, anyway. Long story short, uh, Harv asked me to come and do that, and I said, "Why not?" And um, so I signed up and went aboard. And I have to say, initially, it was rather daunting because I knew the commercial world, I knew the advertising world, but I knew, I knew nothing about the feature world, let alone uh, a major studio, let alone a film that had the potential to be as important as this one. Because as I quickly learned, it's do or die, guys. Yeah, either this one makes it or forget the whole right. franchise. Not that I cared because, I mean, it wasn't my franchise. Right. But um, I realized that there's there considerable weight being thrown around and placed on my shoulders. And, and uh, I mean, it's an interesting thing because here you, you hadn't done features and you just sort of swept in. But what, it's important to understand the context in which Star Trek II was being made. The fact that they had just made a very, very expensive movie that made a ton of money, but it would have made a lot more money had it been done cheaper. So now they're doing it under the aegis of the TV TV division. division. That's correct. Um, Yeah, the first one cost, uh, it was budgeted at about 20-something, I believe, and it went mm -hmm. to 44, 46. And half of that was in visual effects. Uh, They simply didn't know what they were doing. Uh, I hate to say that, but I, I, I quizzed a lot of prisoners in their, separately in their cells. <laughs> well, it's you know it's what you do when you want to learn to not yeah. to make the same mistakes that other people do. And uh, I found out that there was just a lot going on there that was sad. I mean, it's sad because it got in the way of a really happy and good film. It could have been. Mm-hmm. And I'm not a big fan of that first one, to be candid. I mean, it's... You know, I suppose for the believers, it's a it's a wonderful exercise. But I never felt that it was a really first rate piece of storytelling. Um, anyway, so I, I came aboard, and um, you know how to make the transition because in my heart of hearts, I'm a director. Mm-hmm. But one thing you learn when you have a business of your own is the bottom line, and you end up being really a producer whether you want to be or not, because uh, it's it's kind of unforgiving. And it's quick, and there's a lot of turnaround, and you have to really be disciplined. The second thing that I I realized helped me enormously was that working in commercials, you're always dealing with something that cinematically is different. At one moment, it could be a a job that has a lot of visual effects. The next minute, it's a a, 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 a comedy or a a dialogue spot with with, with people, or it's a car commercial, or it's an airline commercial. I did all those. And um, so you have to either learn or know what questions to ask and who to ask them to. And I think that above everything else put me in good stead for this. And as I got deeper into it, um, I was shocked. And I guess at this point in my life and at this point in time, I can be honest and say this, I was shocked at how much a lot of people that I dealt with um, didn't know anything. Uh, I mean, about the craft. Would you be surprised to know that that still happens? They haven't gotten any smarter. Well, that's disappointing. (laughs) It is to me, too. (laughs) No, it's it's kind of frustrating because you presume going in, you know, you go to the the big Paramount sign and everything that these people are really on it. Yeah. And, um, well, some were, you know. And fortunately, I I hired everybody. Mm -hmm. uh, And I interviewed a lot of people. And uh, I was... services? uh, I'm embarrassed, I'm embarrassed okay. to say. No, I missed you on that one. <laughs> did, you, did you hire Gain Rusher? I D- did. The DP? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And the reason I hired him is I had seen a movie of the week that he had done for, I believe, Ron Howard was the director. And I was so impressed with it uh, and with the look of it. And, uh, and I said, you know, that's a really talented man. I knew nothing about him. 
But as you said, though, the parameters were this ain't going to be for the movie division, the motion picture right. division. This is TV. Right. So to me, that's TV. That means commercials. How do you control your costs? How do you get the best people for the lowest amount of money? Yeah. And Gain just stood out in my mind. It's so interesting. Here you hired somebody like Gain Rusher, who, who just beautiful looking picture, right? And then, you know, for Star Trek Three, where you're not there, they hire, you know, an old pro from Dover, Charles Carell, who's been around since, you know, the stone tablets were brought down from Mount Ararat. And it's an awful looking movie. <laughs> it's, it's just, it's... Well, 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 you know, one of the, forgive me, but, you know, an aspect of that is is really, again, in the commercial world, you have to kind of be on top of who's really good right. because your clients aren't going to hire you right. if they can get that from somebody else. Exactly. So you have to appear and hopefully know uh, what's going on, who's doing the best work, and so on. You mean I, you got to know your stuff? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm curious, yeah. how did, what was your relationship with Harv? So it sounds like you were the physical producer of the Were film. you functioning as a line producer pretty much? or? Uh, you know, I think definitions are very difficult in this world, as you know. There, different people get the titles, and <laughs> some people do the work, and other people right, sure. like the titles. Um, I, I, it was like any other feature film, in my opinion, unless maybe it's Spielberg, uh, and maybe Dick Donner, who my my, my dear buddy. Um, you know, uh, it's a combination of, of of talents and events and luck. Yeah. Uh, the bottom line is, if you're if you're asking me who actually cr- created the look of the picture, who actually styled the picture, who actually worked on the story of the picture, and who brought it in on budget, I'm afraid that's me. <laughs> well, there you go. Uh, I mean, I have to be honest with you. I mean, and if you talk to anybody who worked on the picture, right. they will tell you the same thing. Yeah. Well, I love the fact that Harv. Um, you know, had his contract executive producer because in television, executive producer is the right. better credit. But then he realizes it like halfway no. through the movie. When I, <laughs> I want to be right. producer on this. Yeah. <laughs> well, like, not unlike a lot of people in our business, they want the credit without doing the work. Right. Mm-hmm. And, well, you know, I, I, I feel, to be honest with you, I'm a little uncomfortable because um, my candor sometimes gets me in trouble. But maybe I'm so it's I'm so old it doesn't matter. Really. <laughs> uh, no, but but the, but, the, but the bottom line is that uh, I, what you see on my face is what you get. I have no other agenda. I have never had another agenda. I've never been interested in any of that stuff. I don't even know how that works, and I get uncomfortable when people do it to me. Yeah. And um, if I say I'm going to do something, I do it. If I say I'm not going to do something, then I either can't or won't. And um, I'm not trying to BS anybody. Yeah. And that got me into trouble at the studio uh, because, well, I'll give you an example, prime example. Uh, I did a budget um, with Marvin Miller, who had worked for me before when I directed a picture with Albert Finney in Europe. Uh, And he was one of the studio production managers. We did the budget. It was $13 million. And that included visual effects. Right. And uh, which was three. And... um, we sub- submitted, I'll never forget this, we submitted it to the studio, and the word came down, uh, no, we're not going to do this unless you take a billion dollars out of it. And I turned I went to Marvin, I said, what What are they talking about? You know, because here again, which, you right. know, I, if I say it, that's what it's going to be, right. or close to it. Because they're assuming you're already padding it. Mm-hmm. You know, either that, or maybe they th- didn't think I knew what I was doing. Mm-hmm. I don't know what it was, but, mm-hmm. you know, I knew that was a legitimate figure within reason right. for what we were going to do, because I had also designed all the visual effects. Yeah. That stuff was all in, designed by me even before Nick came aboard, and we, he had to back in the live action into a lot of this stuff because we had gotten going. Anyway, um, so they went to the studio, and the studio came back and said, no, you can't do it unless you take a million out of it. And I went to Marvin and said, Marvin, what is it? He just laughed. He put his feet up on the desk. I'll never forget it. He says... Just tell him it's 12. I said, but Marvin, it isn't. It's going to be 13. He said, they do this all the time. <laughs> he said, just, just tell them. Tell them. Yeah. So, I, you know, to me, that was a, that was a monstrous lie. Right, you know, right. but it's, it's the old saying, you just got to get him pregnant. <laughs> <laughs> and the rest will sort itself out. Well, you know, naive. I was so naive and I didn't, I didn't know. It's not, that's not who I am. Of course, yeah. So what did the picture cost? $13. $13. Yeah, 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 that's yeah. right. Now, how involved were you? Obviously, 
the script went through a number of iterations, even before Nick was brought on. Uh, there was yeah. the Sam Peoples version, and yeah. Harv took multiple stabs at it. Yeah. Uh, um, uh, that was, uh, I mean, the film was almost put in the turnaround because they couldn't get a script. It was, it, it was awful. It was painful to see. And I would go into every one of these story meetings with my notes, trying to fix something that doesn't deserve to be fixed. Mm-hmm. And, but, you know, uh, Harv had, you know, that was his thing, and he wanted to shape that, that story. And, you know, technically he was my boss. Right, right. And, but I, I really had a number of animated discussions about that. And I was very concerned because I did not believe that what we had when we were ready to start shooting would work at all. It would have been a disaster. What was the heart of your creative objection to what you were seeing? Which which draft? <laughs> I mean, seriously. See, I mean, some of it was so bizarre. I mean, it was just untenable. Uh, it, I, I, you know, to be honest with you, it's been so long, of course. I can't bring back the details on that. Wow, there was the telepathic con that was... Uh, fighting with Kirk and illusions, and oh yes, but even before that, we had some electric f- creatures who were do- zapping people and doing things to it. That was the Sam Peoples I, draft, yeah. Oh, uh, you know, nice man, but gee whiz, uh, this—I <laughs> I didn't feel like the, this was what an audience was waiting for, right? And I felt it had to have more heart. I finally decided that what it really should be, in the broadest terms, was a space opera. Mm-hmm. I, that was my term, right. and I, I used it when I spoke with every creative person. And um, it wasn't until we got Nick aboard who, well, shall I, but let me back up about, should I talk about director selection? Absolutely, yeah, absolutely please. Okay, yeah. so um, I had a list of 30 or 40, I'm sorry, that's me. Is this you? Well, should we see who it is? <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'm in the middle of recording a podcast. A podcast. <laughs> that's all right. Um, that was Nick Meyer on the phone, by the way. <laughs> I, was, I just spoke to him the other day. Um, I, was, I, I drew up a list of 20 or 30 directors. Now, keeping in mind, once again, that we have to budget con- budgetary considerations. I looked at a lot of people in television, and I was very f- interested in a number of British directors. Mm-hmm. And um, nobody, <laughs> nobody wanted to do it. Mm. They either didn't want to do Star Trek, mm-hmm. they didn't want to do a sequel, they didn't want to do science fiction, or they weren't available. <laughs> and I was going, what? I can't believe this. You know, I, I was dumbstruck. I didn't know what to do. So I finally somehow convinced the management um, that uh, we really should take a good hard look at British directors. And I had just seen Chariots of Fire. Mm-hmm. So I, I, without naming the executive, I, I, the two of us sat in the big Paramount Theater by ourselves, and we screened Chariots of Fire. And when the lights come up, he turned to me and looked. He went, what? I don't know what you're talking about. And I said, oh, I'm in deep trouble. I'm in really deep trouble here. And, and, I, and anyway, long and short of it is I lost that battle. And it won the Oscar that year for <laughs> Best yeah, Picture. That wasn't science fiction. That's right. <laughs> well, what was that guy that was that guy? <laughs> I mean, can you imagine I mean, with yes. all your collective experience being confronted <laughs> with something like that? That's crazy. Anyway, the long and the short of it is my, my assistant, Deborah Arakelian, Ar- mm. uh, suggested uh, Nick Meyer. And I had admired his work in Seven Percent Solution. And although he was not an experienced Really, he did only one picture, as I recall. Uh, I went and had a talk with him by myself. And I, I sent the script over first. I had a talk with him. And that's when I laid on the space opera concept. Right. And um, he got it. He immediately got it. And he started telling me some things. And I went, oh, wow, this guy is amazing. And so I told Harv. And then we went back and had another meeting with Harv. And Harv didn't want to hire him. Mm-hmm. Uh, we walked... Uh, well, we walked out of Nick's house and we were walking to our car and Harv turned to me and he said, um, he's going to be in a lot of trouble. And I <laughs> he said, wasn't wrong. You know, okay, fair, you know, fair enough. But you can't denigrate the man's talent. No, right? absolutely not. You know, I mean, as a writer, I mean, his uncredited rewrite, and I think you all know this, his uncredited rewrite, which he did in 12 days, right. saved that picture without Nick's input. And without his creativity, it would have been a disaster because there was nothing I could do except walk off the lot. Right. And uh, I didn't have any, you know, power other than that. And, uh, oh, I know at one point, though, I did because they said uh, something like, uh, if you don't do this for $12 million, we're not going to make it. I said, fine, don't make it. You know, I had enough money in the bank. I didn't right. need this. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> anyway, uh, so I've digressed. But uh, so directorially, Nick came aboard. 
and did the. the, the and it was so smart of Deborah to suggest him because, of course, um, there was an executive at Paramount at the time. I forget her name. Uh, Karen Moore. Karen Moore. Who she is suggested it to Deborah. I later <laughs> found out, which oh, I did okay. not know. I didn't. Yeah, and Karen and Nick Meyer were, were friends. Are friends yeah. exactly, exactly. And Karen, I liked very much. I thought she was terrific. And I'll tell you who else was ter- really one of my favorite, favorite people at at Paramount at the time was. Um, uh, uh, I we called him Tootsie. Uh, Mark Ovitz. Uh. He was the second in command of the television division. Mm. And Mark was just outstanding. He backed me against a lot of people. Mm. And uh, I, my hats, I always thanked him. And he was a straight arrow guy. Mm. And uh, it really knew what was right and mm. what was right for the picture. That's a rarity. It, no kidding. I, yeah. I'm, a, I'm a huge fan of his. I mean, just what he did in that wilderness was really <laughs> extraordinary. <laughs> he, he was he was the Ganga Din <laughs> riding the water. Um, so so Nick comes in. He rewrites the script. It right. gets a greenlit. I mean, based on that right. incredible 13 day rewrite where he synthesized uh, column A, column B, column C. Amazing. Yeah. Amazing job. And uh, then he's you know then then we got into it and. Um, you know, it was. I was a little nervous about about Nick. Uh, you know, coming from being a director and having directed as much as I had, you know, you kind of presume that directors, you know. And um, so I was on the set every day, hmm. and uh, with my associate uh, Bill Phillips, uh, and um, just making sure everything was okay, except when I had to go up to ILM, and I would go up usually once a week. To view the progress on what they had been doing, even though they were. Well, I have to tell you about the reports that I had them do. That was that's kind of interesting. Um, well, anyway, I, I went up there, and uh, and when I come back, I would look at the dailies from the from the day that I missed. And I, I came back one day, and I looked at the dailies, and it was they were from the scene where Khan is in the um, uh, the sand on the sand planet, and he's uh, with his cohorts, right. and uh, he's giving this big speech. And the cohorts are watching him and reacting. And Nick had shot the eye line for the cohorts uh, for the wrong screen direction. Mm. And um, I, yeah, I went, I controlled myself and I went down to the set. And I said to the script supervisor, you know, how could you let him do this? She said, he wouldn't listen to me. Mm. And I said, well, yeah, but, you know, it's your job to let him know. And, and I, So I went to Gain. And Gain smoked his pipe, you know, that, that pipe. And he just... And he says, yep, try to tell him, try to tell him. So I went to Nick and I said, Nick, you know, that. And Nick said to me, I'll never forget this. He said, I'm not doing a picture about screen direction. (laughs) (laughs) Now, at the time, I didn't laugh. In retrospect, (laughs) I think it's hilarious. (laughs) Well, because, I mean, look, in retrospect, you guys bumped heads a lot, but now you're friends. Yes. And, and, uh, and, um, yeah, as a matter of fact, and I'll tell you how that happened. Shall I digress? Sure. Um, I was. I had uh, two projects that I brought to my friend Dick Donner, and, and Lauren, um, and one was um, Rasputin, mm. which the by the way, monk. <laughs> which I'm working with uh, Roger on now, and which where we subsequently had uh, uh, what was it? Image Comics did ten issues and two graphic novels mm. out of my idea, and. Um, uh, I did, we were looking around for someone to help us shape the material, and I immediately thought of Nick because when it comes to Victorian and people like that, I mean, there's nobody more that I know who's more erudite and more knowledgeable. So, uh, uh, you know, I brought him in, and it was fun. And but before we sat down, I had a little meeting with him in Westwood, and I said to him, Nick, I said, uh, you know, I got to first of all, I said I'm going to apologize to you because. Um, uh, when we started shooting, we were three days in, and you were seven days behind. <laughs> and I went to the management. I mean, you know, it's my first picture, guys. And I said, you know, and for, do that in the commercial world? Are you kidding me? And so I said, you know, I can't. Uh, I said, I think we have to replace him. I don't know where he's going to go with this. And uh, they, they, got, they were very nervous, but they said no. So Nick wasn't too happy with me about that, but I explained to him, I said, Nick, this is my first picture. And I explained the same thing that I just said to you. And I said, maybe I overreacted, but from a producing point of view, and you wouldn't listen, uh, what was I supposed to do? Anyway, we made up. 
Well, it's great. Yeah. And I have, great. Yeah, and I've always had admiration for him and his work. I'm sorry. Can, can, would you mind? I don't have my glasses. Oh, oh okay. Hello? Bob Salas' office. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 switch on the side. Switch on the side. I have a question that I've always wondered about on the, on the film. So this was a sequel, obviously, to the first season Star Trek episode Space Seed. You wrote Ricardo Montalban. You wrote Khan into the script. That was Harv's idea. Did, did, did you ever go to him first, to the actor, and say, hey, we're just going to write this script? Because Mark and I can tell you that <laughs> writing a script without the, putting the actor the in the script and then is dangerous. Is dangerous. Right. And, and how did that work? Like, how did that work? You know, I, my recollection is it was Harv's idea. I, th- I looked at it and I thought, I said, that's a sensational idea. And I said, and I can't remember, to be honest with you, I can't recall whether he had had a conversation with Ricardo or not, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is what it is. Now, let me jump to a story about Ricardo, if I may. Mm-hmm. Um, so Ricardo shows up. We only had him for, I think, 10 days or even less, possibly. And um, the first day, Nick wants him to do that shot in the, uh, on the sand planet. And Nick sets it up, rightly so, as a media master. And it went nine minutes without a cut. And it was perfect. It just doesn't get any better than that. Ricardo was amazing. And not only as an actor, but as a gentleman and as a professional. I was enormously fond of it. We, we used to talk a lot. And uh, the next day, Bill and Leonard showed up. And boy, they were really sharp. They, they were on their game. Right. And they were, they were hitting those marks and they had those lines. You think someone went to dailies? <laughs> exactly. It's so funny. You look at this. Movie. I mean, not that the guys, they were sensational of actors, course, you know, but, but they've done this so many times. You know. Rising tide right. raises yeah. all ships. They're yeah. really interesting. <laughs> it's just so funny. You look at this movie. I mean, it's called The Wrath of Khan, right? right? Ten days. Ten days, yeah. you know, he, he shoots. And, of course, the fact that Shatner and, and Ricardo are never in a scene together. They right. never worked together, that whole movie. I mean, I don't know if they did off-camera lines for each other, you know. During... Yeah, they did. Oh, that's no, great. They did. They were very generous. They all, all, they all were. They were, all, they were just lovely. There wasn't a, I cannot recall a problem on the set except from one of the crew members who I fired. Mm-hmm. But other than that, uh, the atmosphere on the set was generally generally pretty happy how was it having all these old pros from dover the you know, these veteran actors like shatner and and leonard working with such a young director because you know nick, and nick can rub people the wrong way as right, we all know right, right uh but super talented um but they, what was that like you know what it, it, i can't recall a major incident of any kind i mean there were certainly animated discussions <laughs> about how a scene should be played or the core of a scene or the intent of a scene. But I can't recall any kind of uh, stomping off the set or, or you know, raising one's arms above one's head. I can't remember any of that. I think it was such a cagey decision because obviously you had so little money to pro- relatively to produce this movie to, to, to design a film where you could redress the Enterprise sets for your villain ship and get all this incredible production value I'm sorry, I did not do a very no, good a, job as your personal assistant. <laughs> um, no, there's a switch. There it is. I just can't okay. see it. <laughs> oh, there you go. Uh, okay. Fantastic. Okay. Well, maybe somebody interesting calling. Maybe it's Dick Donner. So we don't <laughs> yeah. know. Talk to him about Superman. Um, but uh, but yeah. So um, what was I saying? Um, just it's 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 very you know interesting because. You know, he was very young at the time, and he'd done time after time. He'd done seven. Well, seven percent solution. He didn't direct. He he he, he wrote. He wrote, and then From time after time, yeah. Right. Um, Which I thought was a nice film. Oh, terrific! Absolutely. It's terrific, yeah. and it was great when he did it again in Star Trek Four. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, no, no, and. <laughs> I I'd like to know a little more about your uh, relationship dealing with ILM because mm. um, you guys were sort of their first uh, uh, separate. Uh, dealings right. with someone outside the That's family. That's correct. That's right. Um, and this was a, a sort of test for them to see if they could work for other people and keep right. their overhead paid. Right. Um, so uh, I'm I'm very interested how you storyboarded visual effects shots when you didn't have a finished script. Well, I was kind of working off what was most recent. Mm. And for instance, we knew there was going to be a battle in space. Right. 
So I try to conceptualize how do you do that when these are two lumbering monsters as opposed to, you know, spitfires. Right, exactly. So I had to conceptualize, well, maybe they hide it and one is above the other and there's a cloud. And then I, I came up with the idea of the magnetic field or maybe I talked the to nebula, this. Yeah. yeah. And so on. Um, anyway, working, your question again was how do I work with – oh, yeah, oh right. I, okay. So I did that and then we would I would adjust them. Right. And by that time we were – oh, golly. We were – we were at a point where I, I, the adjustments weren't too painful. They were just right. sudden. I'm sure you, you boiled it down to a number of types of shots. Oh, yes, yes. yes. What, I, what I did was I sat down in my office with um, wonderful Mike Miner. Mm-hmm. Oh, what a super, super talented guy. And uh, he, he contributed so much to this picture. I mean, it was his idea to do the Genesis planet. Right. And, um, and he and I would, for hours, we just talk and right. and he had the wrist and I talked and um, so that's how we we did it right. and then once I had what I thought we would <laughs> do right. use in the picture depending on the which way the wind blew that day um, I broke down each shot into elements right. so I said it has this it has blue screen and it has CGI and it has this and it has that. and I had a long board and then I started originally my intention was not to bid it into one place mm. uh, because again coming from the commercial world we're used to subcontractors right. and I, I know how to control that and I know how to do that so um, I decided we'd bid it out to separate places and so I started having bidding meetings mm. And the documentation was was so thorough and so nailed as it has to be. Yeah. Well, they didn't do it on number one. Well, and they uh, tried. Uh, yeah, a lot so, of lot of things so went that, on. You know, we were moving down that path, and then uh, we had a meeting with uh, somebody high up at Paramount, and they said, "Well, who's going to do the visual effects?" And I told them what I was doing, and they said, "Oh, well, why don't you just go to ILM?" Right. And I had wanted to go there initially, and Harv had stopped me. He said, how are you going to go back and forth all the time? And I said, it's, it's a plane, Harv. It's not yeah, a big deal. Right. Yes, what, no. So anyway, I got to go to ILM. They couldn't have been more marvelous. I mean, I reviewed every single thing with them in detail. They got it. Mm-hmm. And Ken Ralston, you know, right. who was one of my supervisors, later said that, which I took as a, really a, a marvelous comment, a compliment. He said, I have, in his words, I have never worked with somebody who had such a clear vision of exactly what he wanted. Yeah. Mm. And I went, whoa, he's worked with and <laughs> a couple of other people. Having having worked in visual effects before, that is the most wonderful thing you can possibly have mm. because the effects company is worried about changes. Right. Changes and right. changes because usually when changes are made, they're required to do it again for nothing. I know. And, uh, they shouldn't yeah. be. See, but, but well, in the commercial world, it didn't quite work that way, right? Because if 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 we did it and everybody agreed, then the client decided to change it, they paid for it, right? Exactly. Uh, but no, you're 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 absolutely right, and requires that that kind of discipline. And uh, but they were so responsive, and we were uh, it was just we were just all over this. Um, in fact, I had them institute a procedure that they now, and since that time, have used. And that was that every week I had to have a written report on the number of shots attempted, what they were, the status of each shot, what remained, where they behind, and where we stood on money. And boy, that, I'll tell you, we we had it nailed because we would bargain because periodically we would say, "Oh, we're dropping that shot now," right. but we're going to substitute that. So, how much is the difference? Right. And that's how we kept it, and we came in uh, almost to the dollar. Yeah. Oh. What yeah. was the genesis of the CG shot? No pun intended. Of uh, of of genesis. Gen- I mean, that was the one genesis? of the earliest yes. test, yeah. uh, uses of CG in a, right. in a movie. Can you speak to that? Yeah, at all? that was my fault. <laughs> no, it was. Um, I, I, the, the, the concept was great. Again, it was Mike Miner's idea. Um, and I decided because my wife, who's a professional artist, was always having trouble labeling her slides. For, and so she discovered there was a thing called a computer and a computer labeling program. And she was starting to use it. So I thought to myself, well, they must be doing some of this in... So, you know, in, in special effects, too. So I got into it a little bit, and then I laid down a mandate. I said, I want that entire sequence computer-generated. 
and all the color drained out of their their faces <laughs> because it was scary. Yeah. And I was told they farmed it out to Evans and Sutherland, if I remember correctly. I could I, th- I could they, be wrong. They I think they tried to. Oh, is that what happened? Yeah. Well, okay. Well, I yeah, don't. but at, at at that point, Lucasfilm was just starting their computer division, right? As a research and development, um, just trying to figure out different ways that they might, you know, have film scanners and bring in to do digital compositing. But the creation of the images was something that they were just scratching the surface of at ILM. Right. Um, but yeah, I mean that that was completely from scratch. Well, if I Remember correctly, it, that, that 60 second, uh, which is roughly 60 seconds, I think, cost about a quarter of a million dollars it, uh, in those, those dollar days. Yeah. Um, and to do fire, what approach like fire, yeah. I mean, please. They told me, and I could be wrong about this, they told me that at, they, would, they would design it during the day and then they would link 200 computers together during it to at night it and yeah. let it render. And now we yeah. do it on our phones. <laughs> yeah, now you do it on the phone. Yeah. Exactly. Isn't that amazing? It's amazing. Yeah. Um, now they were they were super. I can't say enough uh, wonderful things about them. Well, and it, you know, the proof is in the eating. Uh, it, well, it's, you know, it's amazing. It, it, but again, this was one of the things I, I, I've zeroed in on a lot, which was, you know, the visual effects are not the star of this show. Right. They're not the star of this and story. And they shouldn't be. But, They're there to tell the story. But how many people do we know? <laughs> <laughs> a you lot. Know. I, I'm curious. The movie is, one of the things I've always thought was brilliant about Star Trek II is it's always, it's stage-bound. The whole movie was basically shot on the Paramount lot, and you had moments where, other than the, the last shot at the end of the movie, but you had you had moments where you could have gone outside, like the Genesis cave, they, you could have, or, or when you went, you didn't go to a desert, location to right. shoot con but right and i always thought that was pretty marvelous how the film it doesn't seem stage bound when you're watching it but it was i mean and that was you must have had a that must have been a wonderful like was was it your idea to no we could shoot it all on the stage oh yeah well yes i i was pretty pretty committed to not going on location mm-hmm. originally we had thought we'd shoot at arco santi mm-hmm. i don't know if you know about that no well, you'd, ha- you'd have to look it up. It was—it's the dream city of some architect, mm-hmm. and it's out in the desert someplace, uh, Arizona maybe. It's called Arco A R C O Sante, and we did research it, and it's weird. I mean, it is just—it's perfect, mm-hmm. but it meant schlepping, you know, everybody, and that's expensive, right. and housing, and all the rest of it. So no, I did—I I asked uh, uh, Joe Jennings, who was the production right. desi- manager, designer. And I said, you know, can we really do this? And it was a sand blowing and all that. And he said, yeah, it's going to be nasty. He said, but we can <laughs> we can do it. <laughs> so I listen. I trusted Joe because he yeah. was he was a super guy, and uh, so that's how we did that's how we did it. But you did go on location for one shot, for the end of the movie with the casket, which you shot. I understand. Yep. Uh, can you tell us a little bit? Obviously, this is something Nick didn't want to do. Nope. Uh, this is, it came out of test screenings and all the protests right. about Spock dying. Right. And they wanted to end it on a happy ending. Right. Or, and or, or, or an ambivalent yeah. endings. Yes. Can you tell us a little bit about the genesis of that and then also you shooting it? Uh, you keep in using Francisco? that word. Uh, <laughs> genesis. Give me Genesis. <laughs> okay. I'll stop with that. No. <laughs> the beginning of this concept. Uh, no, no. It, it, everything you say is, is correct and uh, dead on accurate. And the question was what do you do and um and so i think it was harv nick was adamantly against it mm-hmm. uh and i can understand uh, dramatically you know there is something very powerful leaving him like that but anyway so uh harv said well you know what if maybe we show the uh sarcophagus or the torpedo you know on the genesis planet so i went home and like my old commercial days in advertising i roughed out what that should all—that was one I did by myself, mm-hmm. and uh, with the wind blowing the thing and the sun coming through and all that stuff. It's straight out of commercials, <laughs> and uh, I roughed it out and then showed it to Mike Miner, and he made it look really good. And uh, then I went up north. I told ILM what I wanted to do, and then we went up north and decided to do it at Golden Gate Park. And they went out, and they, they had some wonderful ideas. They're the ones that wrapped all these ivy things around the trees. None of that stuff existed. Right. A lot of it was we added. And I wanted the smoke, and I wanted the you know the wind machines, and all the rest of it. And uh, then I did a so when I came back, 
and I had Bill Dornish, who used to work for me, who edited the film, by the way. He, mm-hmm. he used to be a staff editor at my company. Um, he cut it, and he said, do you want to know how long this is? And I said, yeah. He said, it's 60 seconds. I said, oh, God, I can't get away from that. I can't get away from that stuff. But all that was after an unsuccessful test screen. It wasn't unsuccessful. It, no, because I was there. Oh, okay. And I was there at every screening. And, and I won't say it was unsuccessful. It was perhaps less than we wanted it to be mm. because I have to t- – l- l- let me tell you how successful I, I thought it was. You know, the, we'll get to the city eel, I presume you're going to want to know about. Sure, so, absolutely. Well, at one of the screens <laughs> – the very first at Kansas City, people – when that happened, when that sequence evolved, I saw people hiding – they were bar- covering their mm-hmm. eyes. They were turning away. Because of the SETI yell. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So going it, up the... Yeah. And I, and I went, I did an airplane, and I yeah. said, yeah, that's exactly, <laughs> exactly what we wanted. And, and, the, and the, the, the one thing that really surprised me, which t- speaks in a moment to whether I thought it was successful right. or not, was, uh, again, this was Harv's idea, that when the funeral service occurs on the bridge... That he said to me, he said, "What would you think about Scotty playing Amazing Grace?" And I thought, "Wow, that's really touching. I think that could be an emotional, right. you know, high point of this film. I loved that idea." So we did it, and when Spock dies, there was sobbing in the theaters, sobbing and sobbing and sobbing. When Scotty starts to play the bagpipe, people started to laugh, mm. uh-huh. and I went, "What?" I can't imagine what. How did I misread this? And I took it took me a long time to figure it out. And what it is, in my opinion, anyway, is uh, emotional release. I think people were embarrassed to be crying next yeah. to somebody else in the theater, to be emotionally overcome, which they really were. And so when they saw something that unusual, that off the maps, right. so to speak, right. creatively, they'd never seen that before. I think it gave them a moment to not cry. And to just say, oh, and uh, and recover. That's the only thing I can figure. Did you make any changes to that sequence because of the laughter responses? I'll tell you, I mean, we've all seen this movie a billion times, and I've I've never laughed once. I've I've, I've never laughed once. I've cried every time. I'm telling you, the the audiences, they did. Wow. And it segues Was all the music final by then? It's Americans. I think I th- Americans don't understand the bag. The bagpipe is so incongruous. Maybe you're right for us because you're going from we don't consider bagpipes as being. Yeah. I can see how part it, of our culture. Yes, mm-hmm. and I when you're watching the movie, well, I should say when you're watching the movie the first time. I remember. The, I remember this because I thought about this. It took me a moment, and then it's when you realize it is of course Scotty playing. You realize what it means, and as a fan, mm-hmm. it's great. But if you're a casual viewer and you don't understand that Mr. Scott is indeed Scottish, right. why is he in a kilt? Mm-hmm. Why is he playing the bagpipes when why Spock has died? Well, yes, right. this is not something that American audiences immediately would buy into. So yeah, I can yeah, see I think, that. I think that's that's a very good perspective on it. Very accurate. I think so. And it segues and, and so it, beautifully into that James Horner orchestration of Amazing Grace, the symphonic version, which is very powerful. Well. I think everything that Horner did was was wonderful. Yeah. Now let me talk to you about James Horner, please. Yeah, I, um, I'm having worked in radio all those years. I used to go into the music library at NBC and whatever, and pick out the records for the music cues mm-hmm. for all the shows. So I had a you know certain feeling for it. Can't play a note, but can I can listen to four bars and tell you what it is. Yeah. So um, I had I had some pretty strong ideas about who I wanted and didn't want for, for as a composer. So I went to Joel Sill, who was the music supervisor at Paramount at the time, and he gave me a, a stack of cassettes. I don't know, 20 or 30, I don't, can't remember how many. And over the weekend, I listened to every one of them. And, uh, and I kept throwing them away. And I kept saying to Joel, I don't want musical wallpaper. Mm-hmm. I said, this is a space opera. Right. And I want light motifs. Yeah, thematic. Yeah. Exactly. And, but I don't want it to be overpowering. It has to be. And I said, the only one I listen to that even comes close is this one. And he, he laughed and he said, I was hoping somebody would nice. hire him. I've been trying to get him hired for years. Wow. And this, he had done, Jamie had done some little pictures. Yeah. He had nothing of any He'd done a few Corman pictures. Yeah. Yeah. That's, That's right. Stars, humanoids right. from the deep. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And that was that. Yeah. 
And you, it's interesting because obviously you didn't have the money to hire Jerry Goldsmith. That was never part of the conversation. That was the other issue. Yes, you're absolutely right. Um, we didn't, and that's why, perhaps that's why a lot of the people who gave me weren't very good. But uh, no, that said, I'll, I'll share with you now because he's gone. Um, we paid Jamie $10,000. Yeah. Wow. And he did such a superb job that when it was finished, I went to upstairs to the administration building at Paramount and argued, fought to get him a bonus. Mm. They did not want to give him anything. Of course not. And I said, you, and I, anyway, it, it was, it was one of those times that I, and I got him an extra $10,000. Yeah. That's all I could pry out of them. And uh, because I felt he just, he deserved that and so much more Absolutely. because I just picked that score. And that was a great year for him because he did 48 hours for the studio also. Mm-hmm. And two very different scores, but both great scores, obviously, Star Trek Two being the better one. But uh, 48 hours is also a great score yes, that Jamie did. Enormously talented and very sad loss. Yeah, very much so, very much so. And then what was the, your response to, obviously, the huge success of the film? I mean, this is, you know, it, it did, what, 73, 79 million, I think, appears yeah, in 1982. It was a big success. It validated that this was a franchise. Um, and it must be very gratifying for you to see how successful the movie was after you sort of gave your heart and soul to, you know, uh, pulling this into existence. Um, yeah, that, there, was the good, there was a good side and a not-so-good side mm-hmm. about that. Mm-hmm. Um, the good side is everything you just articulated, um, and I'm enormously proud of it to this day that it touches so many people and it works as well as it does. But once again, say, having said that, keep in mind that it was Nick's script and it was Nick's directing and it was Gain Rusher's photography, mm-hmm. and I helped shape a lot of stuff. I must tell you a couple of funny stories about production, though. Um, when it was over... I was called, I don't want to mention, I was called up again into the administration building. They seemed to do that to me a lot. (laughs) And uh, being a little guy, it was, you know, I felt I was getting smaller in this process. And uh, I got a handshake and a thank you, which surprised me no end, because they're not known for that anywhere, as we all know, gentlemen. (laughs) Um, And they asked me if I would stay on to do more. And... um, I said, let me think about that. And um, I said, uh, what about Harv? And they said, well, we want him doing television. Those were the exact words. I remember them clearly. Mm. So I said, okay, let me go home. So I went home and I didn't sleep that night because although Harv and I had our major falling out and major misgivings and major conflicts, such as it were, um, I somehow couldn't bring myself to cut the legs out from under the guy who gave yeah. me the break. Yeah. So I turned it down. Everyone I tell that story to who's in the business said, you're crazy. <laughs> <laughs> but I could, you know, I, again, I'm, I'm naive, I'm whatever I am, but I, morally I just... But you I, can sleep at night. Yeah. yeah. I just could, I couldn't do it. Professionally, it was one of the three major bad decisions I ever made is what I, in retrospect. I should have just done it because you know fellas if you want if you want a moral business go to church (laughs) well even there Uh, but it it would be uh, fascinating to uh, you know in an alternate history to see what the uh, future of the Star Trek franchise would have looked like under the aegis of uh, Bob Sal and I think Star Trek 3 would have been a very different movie (laughs) well thank you Uh, you know I in my quiet and conceited moments that I have with myself every now and then discussions I do look at the unevenness of all the subsequent productions. And that, absolutely. That absolutely would not have happened, I can guarantee you, if I had remained there. I so believe you. <laughs> I, I, I so totally <laughs> believe <too>. you. <laughs> but, but, hey. Well, you, you, you said uh, you had a couple of production anecdotes oh, yeah. you want to share. Yeah, just I mean, all kinds of things. You know, they, 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 they come at you from... <laughs> from all sides during during production and I'll never forget this they um, I, I get a call from the head of, of this production at Paramount and he says um, he says Nick wants to put a camera behind the torpedo behind the sarcophagus right. before and travel with it before it travels out into space to the Genesis planet I said great I said that's a wonderful shot terrific let's do it he said well the set wasn't designed that way and we, we, he says, we're going to have to tear the set apart over the weekend, and rebuild it and repaint it. And he says, it'll cost 
And I said, wait a minute, wait a minute. So I said, everybody down on the set right now. So I walked down and I looked at it. And I said, uh, I turned to the key grip and I said, uh, do you have any of that tubular dolly track that you use for a Western dolly? He said, oh yeah, sure, lots of it. He said, can we put that right alongside the De- the, the the floor, the trough, not right. the, the trough, across the floor. It'll look like it's part of the set. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He said, "Yeah, we can do that." And I said, "You got a Western dolly?" He said, "Yeah, we got that." Is he got the wheels that go on the tubular thing? He said, "Yeah." Got an offset arm for an Aeroflex? Uh-huh. He said, "Yeah, we can do that." I said, uh, "That's the way we're going to make that shot." I yeah. said, "How much is that going to cost?" He said, seven dollars." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it was a it was an endless uh, litany of that kind of yeah. stuff, and I would think, you know, you guys are supposed to be the professionals. You're supposed to know all this. Why are you turning to me? Taking the path of least resistance. Uh, Nobody uh, thinks. Anyway, it was it was fun. I mean, I'm you know they were lucky to have someone that comes out of I mean commercial the commercial world where you're being innovative to create, right? Make your days, right. make your shots. Everything is storyboarded. You knew what you were doing. How many producers had the kind of experience that you had? Probably zero. Mm-hmm. And and so that shot is a perfect example of what you brought to film production that they don't normally have. You know, thank you. That's that's a really interesting comment, and I thank you for it. Uh, because when I got the gig, when I originally got the thing, uh, one of my former clients was a guy named Stan Dragotti. Yeah. And I don't remember Stan from, the you know. Commercial director. Yeah. Well, and creative force at right. Wells Rich Green. Yeah, yeah. And it was one of my biggest clients. I used to do a ton of work for him. And when I'd gotten the assignment, I happened to meet him on our street one day. He was visiting some agent. And I told him what I was doing. And he looked at me and he says, you're overqualified. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Those were his words. <laughs> nice <laughs> hobby, Bob. <laughs> <laughs> oh my yeah. gosh! Anything else that comes to mind from? Because oh. I'd never heard that Dolly story. That's that's fascinating. Yeah, um, yeah there was a, there was just a ton of oh uh, the uh, well the uh, the uniforms. Mm. Oh, the uniforms, yeah. Um, again, trying to make the best out of whatever we had. Uh, I went to uh, Bob Fletcher, right. another classy, talented man, just a lovely guy. And uh, I said, um, uh, you know, we got all these uniforms, right? He said, yeah. And I said, they really look like Dr. Denton's jumpsuits. The motion picture uniforms. Yeah, I said, I thought they were really... And I, and I knew that Nick wanted something military. So I said, look, before we do anything, I said, can we change, can we dye some of this stuff? And he said, let me run some dye tests. So he actually did. Mm. And we were able to come up with a number of colors that these, some of the parts of those uniforms could be particularly the pants, right. and they could be recut. So we saved a ton of money uh, doing that. And um, and then the uh, the caller, uh, Nick, wanted <laughs> prisoner of Zenda uniforms. Right. And I said, no, nah, I don't think so. Uh, so that's when I said, you know, the, the, every department has its own color. So I said, why don't we have turtlenecks? And then Bob Fletcher said, I've got this contrapuntum machine, whatever that is. <laughs> and that's what makes that pleated look right. on those. And I think it was one of the few machines like that left in America. Right. And that's it wow. was, Dick's, it was uh, Bob's idea to wow. do that. It, it was really, really fun. <laughs> so interesting. Because that really was kind of the demarcation point for the end of an era, like all these old... Um, like legendary veteran, you know, Gain and Bob Fletcher was sort of at the end of his career and uh, Joe Jennings and, you know, and it's just like who had grown up in the golden age of Hollywood and worked on all these great movies and they just knew how to do things. They were real craftsmen. You know, now it's like you go to film school and it's like... Yeah, it's just suddenly you're qualified. By the way, Joe and and, uh, Mike came up with something. I don't know if you knew about this, which surprised me because I frankly didn't even think of it. there's a scene early in the film when Shatner and Nimoy are talking. I right. They, uh, where are you bound for home? And it, the, the, the foreground the miniature. Foreground miniature. The foreground yeah. miniature. Uh, yeah. I mean, that was it's just brilliant. a thing of beauty. It's brilliant. gorgeous. It looks great. Yeah. I know. It looks sensational. Yeah, it yeah. probably cost 100 bucks, and it added, you know, $30,000 to the shot. Yeah, we saved a lot of money on so it. So how does Jamie, Jamie Horner get a cameo and not you, though? Isn't he the guy who's uh, James no. Horner has a cameo in the movie? Not that mm-hmm. I'm aware of. Yeah, he, he's the, yeah he he's the guy who's doing the vacuuming or something, or he's in one of the scenes. We huh. should have called Lucas Kendall. Yeah, yeah Horner I think has, he's running down a corner. Yeah, actually. something. He has a cameo, but you wow. you, know, you don't give yourself a Hitchcock cameo. You're too busy working. It's oh, okay. <laughs> the last it's the last thing I thought of. To be <laughs> and you know, and to be candid, after working on it for 18 months, you know, I was so burned out. Yeah, yeah. Sure, sure. I was just exhausted. How did you find your way back? Because you know, I know for a long time. You hadn't really spoken publicly about the film. Um, 
you know, obviously uh, uh, Nick and Harv were very big personalities, so they, you know, had the spotlight to themselves on this movie. And it really seems to be, I know Ed Gross talked to you many years ago and mm -hmm. was one of the first people to talk to you. Um, but it seems in the last couple of years, you've sort of had this coming out party where you're talking about the movie. And, 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 and I'm just curious, how, how did that happen? Did you, is something where you realized people just, this was such a beloved movie or what, what, what sort of prompted you to sort of reemerge? You know? Well, first of all, I was never asked. <laughs> okay. Well, that, there's one answer. It's as simple as that. Mm -hmm. No one asked. You know, Harv was very good at promoting himself, yeah, sure. right? And uh, and I didn't want to play that game. Right, right. And, and as the years went on, and people like yourselves and others who loved the work, I guess, began to look into things mm -hmm. and suddenly discovered that there was somebody else there who might have contributed to the film. It goes back so, to what I said at the beginning of the show. I always was fascinated by that billing block. Who is yeah. Bob Salen? Who is Robert Salen? It's like never on uh, in a Star Trek before, never on a Star Trek since, and yet, you know, this is the, the, the best of the Star, arguably the best of the Star Trek right. movies, by you know, and most enjoyable, and... Uh, What's Where'd the connection? Go? Where'd he go? Yeah. But you get the single card credit, the main titles. That's right. Well, is... I was about, yeah, you know, whenever people ask me, I said, do you think for one moment that a major studio gives a single card credit to a producer who didn't do anything? Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. And as I always tell people, you don't get what you deserve, you get what you negotiate. And that's a nice font. It's a great star field. Even the credits look good. Now. Oh, that was, that was mine. Oh. Yeah, I decided, again, coming from the commercial world, uh, and I, wanted, I said, let's move through a star field. Oh, we've never done that before. And I said, well, we're going to do it now. And then I changed the font. I had the right. font changed just because, just to set it off a little yeah. bit. And I said, it'll retain the flavor, but let's, let's just strike out and mm -hmm. stake our own claim to things Absolutely. a little bit. Um, but anyway, it was, it was great. You know, and um, to be candid, uh, <laughs> I, after I made that first mistake and my, my morality got the better of me. Um, I went out and I sold three projects, uh, two of which were green-lighted, none of which ever got made. Mm. I mean, it's, it, and I went on from that, from, and I said to myself, you know, I'm so glad that I worked in the commercial world because I got a lot of money. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, because it, it, it's just, I had no idea how whimsical the, uh, the, cho the choices of, of work. And I've had things going, and this head of the studio would get fired, and out the door went yeah. the head of the studio and my project. Right, sure. Um, I Whimsical is a good way to put it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> kind word to put it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I have to tell you about uh, the, the, well, you fellows all know because you've been around, but, you know, the, the business is, is so strange. I sold a major feature on two sentences. I, I had this idea. And I walked into Paramount to the head of the studio. And I said, okay, here's the picture. It's Eddie Murphy and Ruth Gordon, my man Godfrey. <laughs> and, they, and the guy said, let's do it. Have your lawyer call me. And we started to work. And what I didn't know was that they couldn't find a project for Eddie Murphy. He was turning down everything that the studio was submitting to him. What I also didn't know was that he loved Ruth Gordon. Ah. And that he and Ruth used to get drunk together in New York. Oh my goodness. And that he just adored her. I had no clue. Wow. And so we start to work on the script, and it's pretty funny, I must say. And Ruth Gordon died. And I went to Eddie, and I said, Eddie, you know, I'm really sad, but uh, so how about Catherine Hepburn? He said, nope. I said, Jessica Tandy? He said, nope. And he wouldn't do the picture. He had his heart set on doing it with Ruth Gordon. Ruth Gordon. So they eventually made the picture. They bought the rights for me. They they made the picture. They changed it around. It was called uh, Guarding Tess. Okay, right. Yeah, yeah. So anyway. Wow, that's a different movie. Yeah. <laughs> wow. But that's... not a bad movie. No, no, yeah. not at all. Not at all. Well, no. He wishes he'd done that instead of uh, The Golden Child. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, I have to say, what a great way to spend the 37th anniversary of Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, with Bob Stanley. I mean... Look, we all know a lot about this movie, right? I heard things I never heard yep, yeah. before about yeah. Star Trek II. And, I mean, I don't know how many times we've all seen that Fakakta movie. Uh, <laughs> but it's a lot. It's a lot. A it's, it, lot. It, it's probably triple digits, right? Easily. So, oh, yeah. um, 
it could be quadruple digits. But, uh, it just uh, so th- this was this was great. I'm so glad that you uh, you came down. Well, to thank talk you for having us. me. Thank uh, it you was for great. Awesome. And it was thank, a pleasure. Thank you, Bob. Thank you, Rob. Thank you, Ashley, and 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 Darren. This is a great episode. So I want to thank everybody for joining us for Inglorious Trexperts. And uh, if you're a fan of this podcast, you may want to check out Electric Surge's other podcast, like the 4:30 Movie every Friday, in which a group of writers and producers curate fantasy theme weeks of classic movies, and of course, best movies never made every Monday wherever you listen to podcasts as well as the new Star Wars podcast The Rebel and the Rogue every Thursday night if you enjoyed this please vote rate not vote rate us <laughs> vote I vote I, I elect them uh, five stars on Apple Podcasts you can follow us on Glorious Trek on Twitter or in Glorious Trexperts on Instagram also very special thanks to the sound master Mr. Bill Ritter who makes this sound so great every week and of course uh, producer Cynthia Hodge who's back there by the monitor uh, who has to stare at our ugly mugs all day as we record these. So anyway, uh, until next Saturday, keep on trekking, ingloriously of course, and happy anniversary Star Trek II. I feel young. Shh! Engage. This podcast is a production of the Electric Surge Network.